and welcome to a brand new episode of Lowdown. Today I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Matthew Clements, the FIFA Training Centre Manager. Matthew, big warm welcome to the show. Hi Connor, thanks for having me on, it's a pleasure. Um, Matt, as we were just speaking off air, it's, uh, it's funny to hear of the places where the Lowdown is mentioned and where it's followed. And probably as someone that's been listening to the podcast before, you know where this first question is going. But could you please take us through your earliest football memory? Yeah, I, I see kind of two parts to this because you have your watching memories. So, you know, I remember watching VHS, you know, the, the, the old videos of the Premier League when it first started. So you're talking, you know, Sharp, Giggs, Cantona, a big Man United fan, you know, and the kind of inception of the Premier But, Sorry, Matt. Don't know what uh, happened there. I don't know. Was it was it me or was it you? I don't know. <laughs> I just saw you frozen, but uh, no. Yeah, look, I, I'll I'll just answer. I'll I'll just ask the question. I I kept going. <laughs> <laughs> kept going. Brilliant. But uh, no, okay. Uh, hello and welcome to a brand new episode of Lowdown. Today, I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Matthew Clement, the FIFA Training Center Manager. Matthew, a big warm welcome to the show. Hi, Connor. Uh, thanks for having me. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Um, Matt, as we always begin with the guest, could you please take us through your earliest football memory? Yeah, I mean, my, my earliest football memories were watching football. And I remember having these VHS video cassettes. And uh, I used to have the, the very best of Ryan and George, which was obviously Ryan Giggs and George Best, being a, a huge Man United fan, which comes from my father, my grandfather, etc. So watching the inception of the Premier League was a very exciting time as a, a young kid who, you know, loved football. So watching the likes of Cantona, Giggs, um, Sharp, you know, these these legends, even Alan Shearer, etc. So that, that was my kind of first memories of Ryan Giggs, you know, tearing plays apart, apart down the left wing, you know, Cantona Grace in the Premier League, originally for Leeds and obviously winning them the league. Um, and I was shocked when he signed for United and these Friday night games under the lights. I remember United and Villa. And at the time, Villa were a top, top, um, not that they are now, but they were first and second in the Premier League. And then I look at them, the 94 World Cup. I was slightly a bit young for the 90 World Cup, but 94 and remembering Brazil, obviously dominating the tournament. And you had Bebeto, Dunga, you know, um, Romario. And they had this special celebration, I believe, because Bebeto just had a baby. And I think I always remember that. And... A little bit then of Roberto Baggio obviously missing his penalty and Brazil winning the World Cup. And I think as well, one thing that always sticks in my mind is kind of 
on the VHS is, is watching Johan Cruyff. And I was a, he was a huge role model for me, watching you know, how he graced the field, how he manipulated the ball and beat, and beat players. So those are my earliest memories of watching football. Um, in terms of my earliest memories of playing football, I just remember joining and playing a, a grassroots team and just remember feeling free, you know, and wanting to score as many goals as you can and express yourself. Um, so, yeah, those are my, my earliest memories of football. Quite interesting, too, because a lot of those memories are linked to kind of taste. And, you know, it's quite a very taste. And, you know, that takes me through to your early starting coaching. And, you know, there's certainly an awful lot of work going across a variety of levels from coach to football development officer to analyst. And it was quite fitting, you know, all that groundwork was going to be set in stone for your future career. Yeah, I think I always kind of knew from from when I was told I wasn't going to be a, a professional footballer. I always wanted to be involved in football. And I was kind of very lucky as part of my university degree, we had to do a work placement program. So I did it with the Football Association of Wales and I, I got early an appetite for coaching. Although I was coaching grassroots football, I really, really enjoyed and got a lot back from it. And I was very lucky from that perspective that then I was working with better coaches so I could use them as role models to kind of learn from. And I think the football development officer role gave me a real good grounding within the game. So I not only learned about coaching, I, I learned about working with people, whether that's working with parents and understanding parents, working with other coaches and supporting the development of other coaches. Um, working with junior leagues as well and understanding, you know, how junior leagues work, uh, what they're looking to do, what their main objectives are, how I can help them, etc. And the needs of the people that are helping sustain these leagues as we know they're all volunteers. It gave me a really good grounding. And I think, you know, in terms of the, the FAW, I was very lucky in that role because you're not not just seen as a football development officer. We were seen as technical directors for our areas. So I was based in central Wales at the time. So I was the acting technical director following the vision of the technical director to improve standards, to make more and better players, to improve coach education, to have more and better coaches. Um, so that you know that gave me a really good grounding because then I not only worked within the inclusion of the game, I was a coach educator, so I was delivering on coach education courses. And I think any player development coach will develop themselves via delivering on coach education because for me, it gave me a good grasp of how to educate and how to make things clear for people to understand. And that's essentially what you want when you're designing practices for your players. And then I obviously got to work on player development as well then where originally starting off within our girls' regional squads and working up. It's very interesting because, I mean, from what you speak of there, it sounds as though, you know, and it's a common thread on this podcast, who's speaking to football, speaking to people about getting a break in football 10, 15, 20 years ago, there is a added consensus there that we were in an era of specialism where people were put down one predefined path where it sounds to me as though the path that you were put on, you know, beknownst or unbeknownst to yourself at the time through that role at the FAW was one of generalism. And, you know, that's a very positive thing too, because 
it's rare to be put in positions where your job is matching your CPD. And the education you're getting on a day-to-day basis is as good as you could as you could feasibly get anywhere else. Yeah, I, th- I think that's a great point to make, Connor, because I've, I've always kind of been asked the question, you know, what is your specialty? And, you know, I would kind of lean towards more coaching, but I think that wouldn't do it justice because, as you said, I was very lucky to work in all different types of departments within the FAW and it was never you just put in one department. So you're more of a, a team manager, as as to say. So you 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 do kind of specialise in coaching, but I was specialising in coach education, in player development. I kind of went into more technology as well, um, you know, so I kind of developed myself to become more of a gen- generalist, which I've been very fortunate that, a lot of people have appreciated that and a lot of people, you know, working within the FAW and within FIFA and the academies that I've worked in throughout my time, whether that's Swansea City, whether that's Cardiff City or Shrewsbury Town, they've all appreciated, right? He he has a plethora in terms of his skill set and we like that. Yeah, it's it's a pretty interesting one too, because there's an awful lot of those soft skills as a T-shaped practitioner, a specialist generalist that, you know, can't be taught. It's like the lay of the ground. It's just the finest piece of innovation is happening from, you know, the surface area of brushstroke, of so to speak. So for me, that's really interesting nowadays to see, albeit these young leaders rise to the top of some preeminent sporting and football organizations, but the nature of their backstory and their history. And it's so interesting looking at your own path. You speak of Cardiff, you speak of Swansea, Shrewsbury Town, the FAW, but then the call to join FIFA. And, you know, nonetheless, the circumstances in which you took the call from Arsene Wenger, of all people, to join FIFA. Could you take us through that, Matt? Yeah, um, I mean, I I was never, like, looking to leave the FAW. I loved working for them. It's my country, um, you know, and I I loved my job. But I found myself kind of, um, as you said, working across several departments, but also developing the technology within the FAW to be, uh, what I would say, like in the field purpose of technology then. So we could use it because we, we didn't have a huge budget. We, we had to be frugal. Um, and yeah, I, you know, I, I had a call to show FIFA um, uh, the platform that we developed within the FAW called Coach Cymru. And they, they really liked the platform. And there was a job coming up to kind of develop the same type of thing within FIFA, an educational platform, whether that's informal to formal learning. So they asked me to have a talk with them. And uh, yeah, you know, when I went onto the Zoom, I, I nearly had to call my wife because, you know, Arsene Wenger's on the call. And, you know, uh, the call I had was, look, I want you to come and work for me at FIFA. And it was you know, God, wow, you can't say no to Arsene Wenger, you know, so I, I said yes, without even kind of thinking about the job initially, and then told my wife, you know, that this is kind of the oh shit moment, then if that makes sense, you know, or have I done, but from talking to him more and more. Is it? Oh, yeah, not all good. <laughs> Sorry. Um. Yeah, from talking to them more and more, I kind of got uh, more interested in the job and from Arsene telling me his vision on what he wants to do in terms of leveling the playing field all over the world and creating educational content for the world of football. I just thought, you know what, there's, I love having an impact and I felt like 
Arsene was empowering me to have an impact in within the game. Hmm. And it's it's interesting. I don't quite I don't quite believe that people actually understand the length and the breadth of that role and that task as well. Because I mean, you join me today, you know, <laughs> ready to embark upon another weekend of travel. Uh, we were just speaking of travel plans coming into the Christmas, and your position is largely that of a globetrotter. How exactly would you explain your very role for FIFA? Yeah, I think the easiest way to say the, the role of FIFA training centre manager is to uh, oversee the, the strategic development of technology and content for global education. I think that is the easiest way to explain it. Now, we can go in more detail. You know, FIFA wants to create content for the world. We, we want to kind of support everybody, whether that's to study the game, to develop effective training sessions, or to create a high-performance environment. That would be the first port of call. So we create bite-sized content, in-depth content research based on that. that. That would be kind of one area. But we also have, obviously, national associations who are doing a fantastic job and part of our job is obviously to upskill them. So, you know, they have better coach educators. We're educating their high performance teams. Uh, we're educating their leaders. So that the other aspect then is creating blended learning programs, whether that's online, e-learning, on-site, mentoring programs. Um, for our member associations, we've recently worked with our technical leadership department to develop the technical leadership diploma which is in its first um, inception and on its first cycle we've got a coaching development pathway which isn't about educating coach educators it's the next layer up where we're educating those that educate the educators so it gives us gives me this high level view really of you know what FIFA's targets are for each department, then I get to work with each department to bring to life their educational offers from informal to formal. That's interesting. Educating the educators. What does that entail? Yes, yeah, so it's, it's a really innovative course that coaching development have, have come up with. And it's all about upskilling coach educators and those that train the coach educators so there's a competency framework around it which is based on uh, leadership it's based on management it's based on teaching and learning it's based on assessments and feedback so there's these competencies that are put in place and then from those competencies we created a pathway so e-learning and they go through an e-learning course then they go on to an online learning which is presentations then they go on to on-site where again, presentations with an expert, group work, etc. But then it doesn't stop there. It's all embedded with mentoring. So they're assigned a mentor to mentor them on sessions, but also mentor them in terms of their organizational skills, their leadership, their management. And then it's all underpinned via what we call a profiling tool, very similar with technical leadership, where we use a profiling tool within our system. So as they're going through the process, them and their mentor can mark them and then we can suggest content to them or they can suggest an action plan to develop them further. Absolutely fantastic and you know 
at the heart of all this, and as we spoke about, is technology. And understandably, the pace of technology right now is far outstripping our capacity as a human species, I would say, to adapt. With that being said, what does a healthy relationship look like between coaches and technology? Yeah, I think the first thing, because it's a really good question, and it's an opportunity to reflect, is technology should not become a project. It should support your projects, if, if that makes sense. You know, I think a lot of people try to find a solution before they know what the problem is that they want to answer. You know, there's this out there. We're going to use this. Well, my advice would be to take a step back and look at what problem you want to solve and then work with your team, collaborate to kind of get to the solution. So how are we going to now get to the solution for this problem? Because I think, you know, a healthy relationship with technology is where, you know, you're not quite happy with it, but it delivers what you need. Because, you know, you're never going to be fully satisfied with technology. There's always going to be problems. But what you don't want is the overuse of technology where it then hinders your content and doesn't really give a product. Because every time, whatever you deliver should be more important about the content and the education you're trying to provide and not the technology that's providing it. Mm. And it's interesting, too, because... You know, you speak of supporting projects and one big one, of course, at FIFA is, you know, as you spoke about leveling the playing field. And there's a quote here I have from a, a recent interview with your boss, Mr. Wenger, and that is football is conquering the world at unstoppable speed. And at the moment, there's a dysfunction between the audience and practice in some countries. Part of that, Matthew, what role does the FIFA training center play in minimizing that gap? Yeah, it relates back to what the, the kind of key aims for the training centre are, where, you know, we we, we want to educate people to be better at studying the game. So you get this from the Women's World Cup, the Men's World Cup and the FIFA tournaments. The first starting point is to identify where the best teams are at and then what the gap is. And that's what Arsene's alluding to is we know from tournaments that certain teams always qualify and certain teams don't qualify so what we need is a benchmarking process where you know whether that's technical tactical or potentially physical you know what are the professional the best players what what are they what's their level what are they doing if that makes sense so we can know where the top level is and then we put that out on the training center. So we highlight what, what best practice is, but we also link it to training sessions. So how you can train then, um, you know, the best players, what types of practices, and then how you can create a high performance environment. So it's very limited what the training center can do from a public perspective, because it's a website, you know, you'd like to hope that people all over the world, you know, we are growing an audience, which is fantastic. Go there and they use it for their informal education and they use the training center, whether it's to learn how to study the game, design effective practices or how to create a high performance environment, kind of like a framework. But it kind of links then what Arsene's saying is back to one of the programs that FIFA has um, is the talent development scheme where FIFA is working with countries to put a talent coach and to create academies to upskill um, these nations as well. That will have a more pr profound effect than the training center. And we have the public area 
then we have a community and a learning area. Now, hopefully within our community area, we have court, maybe the best coaches in the world supporting maybe those that, you know, aren't at that level. You know, this is maybe the, the player pathway we have in place. We have a seamless player pathway of players moving through our age groups or we don't start competition to the certain age. We train in a certain way. And then it's all about how these countries adapt those practices and the same in terms of the coaching development program, you know, by getting better coach educators trained up, hopefully you get better coaches, better coaches gives you better players. So it's that top down approach in terms of um, supporting players and the exact same for technical leadership via developing better technical directors. We hope that these people in leadership positions can, you know, create a strategic vision for their organization that everybody buys into, create the objectives and work with their national association to kind of start developing players. And, you know, the one thing that the training center doesn't do, we can't do is obviously, you know, funds and a population, et cetera, are also key drivers. Of course, it just sounds so interesting how compelling the vision is and the steps that are being taken to find and identify that strategic gap and minimize that over time, which I think, you know, it will be an iterable medium to long-term game for the organization. And you do see the fruits of that labor already coming to fruition, I would say. And at the heart of that, I mean, of course, it's been a quite successful and unique year for FIFA, right on the back of the male World Cup and the female World Cup. And I would have to say, as a football fan and coach, at the heart of that, you know, it's been highlighted by the conceptualization of a new football language, you know, and as you alluded to earlier on, Matthew, countless insights shared. I just want to engage with you now, you know, through people's engagement with the content you guys were putting out there, was there anything quite surprising or unexpected coming back from people's interaction with that content? Um, ju just the appetite, really, for studying the game, which was, um, you know, a, a, a very pleasant surprise for us, was more and more people wanted more technical and tactical analysis of the game. Um, you know, from varying tournaments, it wasn't only the World Cups. It was, you know, are we doing other tournaments all around the world, which we we are aspiring to do? And can they have more games put up there? Can we look at different for, uh, different animations of formations, et cetera, which is what we're aspiring to? So that was kind of the main one. The practices that we put on are very um, uh, highly uh, looked at, which we thought they would be anyway, because we know there's that big appetite. So... I wouldn't say, you know, that there was any more surprises, you know, the football language, you know, there's been um, a huge demand in terms of um, people wanting to maybe get to understand that further. And on top of that one, people being able to download clips off the website is something we're working to and, and was a surprise because, you know, that was in high demand as well. Uh, for me, it was quite breathtaking isn't quite the word but it was quite unique for a tournament organization to be offering that experience because for me it's a case of right you know as a football fan i feel appreciated i feel involved that i get similar access to the same as a coach or as an analyst dictating a game and it's it's interesting kind of the way in which we have this football universe or ecosystem imbued at the moment where Essentially, there is little difference between the coach analyst at a club 
little difference between the person that's able to sit on the couch watching the game getting tangible, actionable insights. Yeah, again, I think that's a good point and something we've we've always discussed is, you know, we're not only there to cater for, you know, the elite, you know, but there are people that love football and want to upskill themselves. There's even young coaches now that are working at a potential grassroots club, maybe coaching once a week, but they might be potential national team head coaches or youth international coaches of the future. So, you know, whether that's, upskilling somebody that maybe helps their grassroots team on a weekend we still have a job to do that or whether it's to support an international coach design a more effective practice again we have that that's a challenge we have is the varying um, audiences that we have Um, but that's definitely you know one of our key target audiences is to make sure that you know we cater for these um, groups it's interesting because you speak of effective practice. I listened to you on David and Keith's podcast, the Goldust podcast, which I'll link in the show notes below, and it's fantastic. And I heard you speaking about your fascination of how coaches make decisions. And, you know, evidently and fundamentally at the heart of this is the coach-player relationship, Matthew. Um, for me, the game doesn't seem to be necessarily about uh, teaching content, but it's, you know, a way of being and seeing more of the coach's personality I would say, coming through the sessions. So with that being said, what steps are FIFA taking to lean more into perhaps providing psychological content for coaches? Yeah, it again, it's another great question. You know, a, a player doesn't care what you know until that they know that you care. And I think that psychological side of things is something Arsene's very big on. He thinks psychology and neuroscience is kind of where the the development of the game is going to go. So we are in the process and we have a little bit of psychology content on the platform. But what we're trying to highlight in these elite training sessions is not only the coaching methodologies used, but why the coach is using that methodology. So, you know, they might be doing a walkthrough to create clarity for the players, not for their own good, you know, understanding then, if that makes sense. Or, you know, why maybe a coach tells a joke at the start of a session or how a coach greets a player, highlighting these little soft skills as to say why the coaches are doing these because they want player buy-in. They want to develop a um, a culture, you know, and they, and they want to work with their players. So I think that's very important and something we are aspiring to is kind of the why behind the coaching methodologies and to kind of go more towards, as you said, the psychological development of players and coaches. Yeah, because for me, it's going to be, you know, extra important i would say and you can't overemphasize the importance of it going forward in terms of understanding the psychology of yourself and yourself in relation to each of the players because just from having countless conversations with people on and outside the podcast there seems to be not a widening but an increasing chasm now uh, between i would say coaching practices and coach well-being just in terms of what we spoke of earlier on before in terms of an added fixture schedule in terms of uh, the onslaught of technology at the moment we i would say like coaches worldwide are all feeling the added strain the added pressure so it's going to be interesting to see how kind of you know obviously things go in booms and busts in terms of cycles so it's going to be interesting to see what is the latest kind of not invention but how we 
as a collective come together to better deal with it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think high performance starts with well-being. It has to; those have to be the foundations. I think otherwise, you you can get problems. Maybe as you you start to neglect your well-being, so that's a very interesting view to have. I think as well because you know, are we going down the route of, um, you know, coach coach psychology more than do you mean in terms of coach development? I think a lot of coach development has been X's and O's. But you'll see from the coach educator program, this can be applied to coach development in terms of, you know, developing leadership, developing management, developing teaching and learning. There's a lot of sports psychology and, and well-being in order to lead others. You, you have to be able to lead yourself first. And for me, there's well-being in that. Yeah. And it's it's very interesting you say that because I had a recent guest on the show, Johnny O'Neill, and his app now head coach. Uh, seeks to kind of minimize that gap and kind of allow a more kind of integrative function of basically coaches' needs along with their players. And there's a huge thing there about, you know, I wouldn't say um, confidence versus competence, but certainly B needs versus D needs. When we look at, you know, is the coach man managing themselves well? Are they keeping on top, keeping abreast of their well-being to better serve their players too? So, it's going to be interesting to see how further technology kind of enhances going forward to match that need. But yeah, you know, as a as a football fan and coach yourself, I mean, obviously you consume an insatiable amount of football. I, I can only imagine matching a day-to-day basis. But as we've seen, like just noticing a few trends from previous World Cup, from previous Women's World Cup and the Club World Cup, you know, the game seems to be a case now of attacking through time and not space, but teams now having so many adaptive functions in their arsenal you know so where's your mind going now where's your perspective going when you're watching the game what can we expect to see over the coming years yeah it's it's really interesting i think the game is getting more and more interesting you know as it goes on and if we look at the men's world cup what it told us is is exactly what you just said you know teams are attacking more you know kind of through, I would say, um, more quickly then, do you mean, as opposed to finding time and space, you know, that there, there, there are teams that do that. But if you look at the trend, Morocco being a great example, you know, I think a lot more underdogs then will maybe get in better positions. I think that trend is coming. You see that now early within the English Premier League, where there's a lot more underdogs at the top of the league um, and I think that's just down to um, distinctive playing styles, but also the buy-in of the players for that playing style. Spurs is a great example, you know, of how they are really buying into whatever, you know, Postacoglu is, is doing with them. He's doing a fantastic job. Um, I think as well, non-possession is becoming a trend, which is quite an interesting one. You, you see that now through, throughout all the leagues, even in the Champions League. Um, if you look at Copenhagen, then, for example, doing quite well um, and the two times they played Man United, you know, getting results and I think having less than 40 percent possession, you, you see the same with the likes of Morocco. So you can you football is always goes in cycles. You know, um, you can always look back to what has happened and it does happen again. You look back to even 
you know, 2006 to 2008, you know, there were fantastic counter-attacking teams. And it seems to use the counter-attack as a weapon, as, as come back into the game again, which is very interesting. Um, uh, you know, the, the young players, again, I think that previous years, we haven't had a plethora of young players coming through and darting on the scene. You know, we had Ronaldo, we had Rooney, etc. And there's been other players coming through, but I'm seeing that again, especially in World Cups, you know, Musiala, Bellingham, you know, that there's some fantastic soccer players that are coming on the scene and establishing themselves as stars straight away. And then you've also got the other side of that. If we look at the World Cups, look at the veterans, you know. So, you know, we look at Messi, we look at Modric, you know, Giroud, Giroud was in the World Cup again and breaking records, you know. Um, Ronaldo, Thiago Silva. You, there's, so you've got the young players breaking through and you've got the veterans and they're both doing very, very well. So I think that's been something to maybe keep an eye on. Does the game change? And I think the reason why a lot of veterans, especially strikers, are being able to maintain their kind of position within the game is because the, the profile of the striker has changed. So if you look at Giroud, Benzema, I didn't mention Benzema, but I've mentioned him now. You know, they, they're not, you know, going in behind all the time and, you know, they're not leading the presses. And so there's not that huge physical exertion on those. They've had to be cleverer, whereas now the role of the number nine seems to have adapted a bit for them or they, they've made their own kind of um, role based on that then where they're more playing in between the units, bringing others into play and then playing between the box. Yes, we have the exception now in terms of Haaland and potentially Rasmus Hoyland. Again, young number nines who probably can play up against players, can go in behind. Um, I think the mid-block as well as obviously, especially at the Women's and Men's World Cup has been um, a huge trend, um, you know, mid-block to counter. Um, one thing that really interested me was the the height of the goalkeeper. So the goalkeeper's line, that has got higher um, in the World Cups, I believe, to be interesting, 1.3 metres higher. So, you know, that that's quite interesting. But that now has its own impact because that is what is best practice. Now, you see David De Gea now, there was a lot of complaints from Aunt when you'd analysed Man United's games where he was always too deep and he was never high enough. So Man United couldn't have a high line. Probably hence why Eric Ten Hag wanted a change to Onana because he plays a lot higher up the pitch. Now, this has been a trend at Champions League and the World Cup. So it's, it'll be quite interesting now what impact that ha further has on teams. So that's one thing I would definitely watch closer um you see a lot of teams now the create a back four but they use the goalkeeper as the second center back the center back becomes the right back which allows the full backs then to go further forward so that is as impacts for player development because if you're an academy coach at the moment or a youth development coach you're not developing players for now you're developing players for in five to ten years time so the odds are that's going to involve and probably become more prominent or, you know, maybe get a higher line. So something to be kind of very, very um, aware of. Um, 
I think as well an interesting point would be the Winter World Cup being the first, obviously, that you could argue that the two Winter World Cups to a certain extent, can you? Because Qatar, although it was, you know, still hot, it was in Qatar's winter, but also the Women's World Cup was based kind of in Australia's winter. But if we look at the Men's World Cup, teams had faster starts. And what I mean by that was players were fitter when they came in and they were already up to optimum fitness levels unless they were coming back injured because they were already playing and within periodised programmes at their yeah, club. So we were looking at, um, as well, another trend is building around a star player. If you looked at the World Cups, both male and female, um, if you look at Argentina and France in the men's game as an example, you obviously had uh, Messi, um, and then obviously you had Benzema, so two star players that were, were built around essentially. And if you look at Argentina's general shape, they always left Messi high, obviously to prevent the amount of running he would need to do within defensive transition and defending. So that's a trend. Now, I wonder whether that trend f- follows over to club football, because predominantly club football, you haven't built around a star if you look at the 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 trends uh, you know and man united would be an example where you know they needed to get rid of ronaldo because ten hag wanted to play within a certain way as opposed to within the world cup you see ronaldo's or portugal built the team around him hence to get the best out of him so i think that's you know quite a, quite a trend uh, which has been going on and then an interesting one is around there's dominant personalities. So there was a lot of personalities, you know, like Benzema, like Messi, that had obviously succeeded at the World Cup. Um, and, and a trend that I missed that I didn't mention was the use of wide areas. So you obviously had, you know, many uh, way back now in terms of zone 14 being this magical zone where most assists came from. And then, you then you had the half space that kind of come into things where most assists came from. But the interesting one that we looked at and we studied was how teams are you underloading and overloading, underlapping and overlapping wide areas. So it's very interesting when a Man City do it very well within the Premier League, where they, they overload one side, isolate over the other and then attack down the wide area. And it's always that cut back into that second six yard, as we call it, or the golden zone where they tend to get numbers into and get a goal. So quite a lot of of trends. Um, You know, the number of teams that now play vertically more and get the ball forward quicker more is another interesting trend. And that, that, again, you'll see that exactly in the Premier League. Um, You know, another trend teams are passing forward more often. Very interesting, you know, selfishly, uh, from a football fan's point of view, what I enjoyed the most there was when you speak about the huge chasm between the age, between the stardom of some of the youngest players in tournament football versus the oldest. And for me, I can't recount a time where I've seen players, the likes of a Bellingham, the likes of a Musiala, the likes of a Zaire Emery at PSG, that have the game intelligence of someone that have played 150, 200 professional games which most have evidently, but also have the advantages of being young and the physical conditions to match. And so for me, it's just kind of led to this game at the moment worldwide where at the elite level, 
it's just like it's as hybrid as I've ever seen before. And for me, it's a case of I actually I would have been one of those that would have been quite outspoken and vocal against the five sub rule. But yeah. to be honest, right now, I think it actually adds to the quality of the game. We have more intense and more meaningful football actions per 90. Yeah, 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 you're absolutely right. Into in terms of the subs, I, I was one of those that oh, you know, five subs is going to disrupt the game, and I think you've got a number of sides to it. And you is what it does do. It allows you to maintain a tempo by bringing on fresher legs to maintain the physicality, which I think is a good point. But also as well, you've got some managers that. Uh, disrupt the game very well that if there's the last five minutes then they make a sub every minute or so whether within the rules where they can make them you know because obviously you're limited to how many times you can change it um and that again is you know a tactical skill that a lot of these managers have been using and i suppose it's marginal gains and gamesmanship also allows you um and, and i i like that you brought up um, Bellingham and Musiala and their game intelligence and I think that that's simply for me down to the improvements in training but in terms of training styles and practices if that makes sense because for, from my time around academies you know from starting off in academies and watching how things there became this more player-centered approach where you know it was more about developing player decision making so if you look at Jude Bellingham now and you can go on the training centre um, a colleague and friend of mine Tony Colbert has done a fantastic write up on him and it, I show it to my son uh, along with the Mbappe one and he assumes the game if that makes sense he makes an assumption where the ball is going to land and he beats everybody to it and I've not seen many players that can do that it's like he's guesstimating where the ball is going to go and he just gets there every time and he, he seems to always guess right on majority of the time. And, you know, it's very similar in terms of Musiala, the way he's ghosting past players. He's like, you know, yeah, he's fainting and going the other way, but he's also reading the defender and not guessing. He's making an estimate which direction to go. So I think that's purely down to, you know, the different types of practices that are more player-centred, that, you know, as opposed to, you know, just using one form of practice, whether that's blocked practices, you know, or more variable with more decision-making. I think now coaches are more conscious and they're picking practices based more on what the players' needs are. And for me, competition drives development. And if you look at these top players, they've been playing in youth tournaments or been playing in, you know, highly competitive games for a number of years. So stepping up to this level now is second nature to them. It's very interesting you speak of that too, because for me, again, we're harping on about them, but Bellingham and Musiala, for me, they're fantastic examples of changing the problem for opposition defences, you know, both in two completely different ways, break lines of pressure. Uh, Musiala through obviously his unique dribbling ability but Bellingham what I've noticed an awful lot recently is especially when you see him play for Madrid and La Liga you know he's making depth runs from the sixth position at times often behind the opponent's back four and it's a case of right opposition defences in La Liga have never had to come up against that problem before in terms of zonal pass-ons so for me in terms of making the attacking players unpredictable as, as possible as a principle 
and making your defensive organization as predictable as possible seems to be a keen theme running through football at the moment. Absolutely. Uh, you know, we had this discussion internally at FIFA and he's like, is Bellingham a six? Is he an eight? Is he a 10? Is he a nine now? <laughs> so this is the thing. So I think you've kind of answered, you know, what could be the next future trends is, you know, rather than formal positions, we now do see more animations where, you know, fullbacks are now, uh, you know, in uh, centre midfielders a lot of the time they, they play inside. You know, wingers at some stage became inside forwards again. You know, number nines became false nines. They became number tens, etc. Um, you had the false fullback, which is a centre midfielder coming out to the fullback position. And I think there aren't many around that have the, the physical skill set along with everything else that Bellingham has. But like you said, you know, there was probably Gerard maybe and one or two others that could probably do what Bellingham has, but Bellingham probably has, has more game intelligence where he knows when to make that run from a six to now get into the box, which, as you said, it's an absolute nightmare to mark because do you have the, the maybe the 10 who was marking him originally follow back? You probably don't want that. Do you want maybe an eight or a six who was deeper? But, you know, they're probably already marking somebody. So it does create, you know, that challenge. And I just wonder whether when you have a star like that that has these attributes, when you have a star like that that has these attributes, do you almost go against the curve and don't, you know, you don't give a position as such? Maybe when they're defending, this is your position. But when we're attacking, you do what you do best. And I think there will probably be more of that to take advantage of these unique skill sets that a lot of these players have or these super skills that they have. Yeah, and you know what? I don't know if you've been following too much, but Jamie Hamilton, he's been doing a good piece uh, for the past year or so, if not longer, on uh, relationism. And for me, it's all about the ecology of team dynamics in terms of you're seeing a Madrid get the best out of a Jude Bellingham because they're building from the ground up. It's an emergent property. Uh, one team that has, you know, captivated fans all over the globe has been that of of uh, Roberto Denise's uh, Fluminense side in Brazil, who won the Copa Libertadores last week. So I just wanted to hear your opinion and thoughts on them, because that seems the style of play, although like an awful lot of innovation can be taken from the past. Having watched countless games before and studied the game extensively, I'm yet to see a team with such broad relational dynamics and such a fluid style of play as Denise's Fluminense. Yeah, it's fantastic. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you brought that one up. You know, it's, it's just said it's very unique. And I think that the best coaches for me, they do what the game asks. So they don't so much copy others. They come up with their own interpretation of the spaces that are left. So, you know, what it doesn't matter really what a team is playing. You're putting principles into your team as opposed to, rules or tactical laws so they understand that you know if they're pressed with one you have two if they're pressed with two you have three they understand the principle of overloading and move you know using creation of space for that movement and for me coaches like that are the best you know your guardiolas your deserbies you know the coach at fluminense he's done a fantastic job with it and i would like to see him maybe um, maybe coming to Europe at some stage, do you know what I mean? And and really, really, we can learn from these coaches, you know? Sure, and 
you know, speaking of a Club World Cup, which is impending upon the horizon, you know, they say the most likely outcome is always the most entertaining one. I mean, how does that whet the appetite inside FIFA of a possible match between Guardiola's Man City and Denise's Fluminense? Oh, fantastic. You know, we're, we're already discussing ways that we can, you know, kind of share this with the world from, you know, a tactical perspective. Um, I think that the, this is where you get the great matches most of the time, you know, where, yes, they might cancel each other out within certain things, but you just know, especially with Guardiola, he's going to do something that hasn't been done before. Because I think that's how he challenges himself. He always challenges himself to find that spare player. You know, where can I put the spare player? You look at what he's done with, um, you know, John Stones now moving into midfield, um, you know, and you see it now a lot of clubs have copied Guardiola, which he did previously in terms of the fullback on into midfield. You just have this feeling that one of those coaches are going to put a player in a position, you know, where... Um, they're going to find the spare player, have that overload and dominate possession, but it's going to be an unexpected player going in there to do it. Yeah, and, you know, that's an interesting theme too, because speaking of unexpected outcomes, I mean, FIFA's decision to expand the Club World Cup to a larger 32-team-based format in the coming years is, you know, it's obviously wielded a lot of backlash, um, noticeably from prominent, from prominent media sources. But for me, honestly... It's quite exciting as a fan because it's never been done before in terms of the quantity of games between more meaningful games between Europe's best and South America's and Africa's and North America's and Oceania's in terms of you just do not know what could emerge and what impact that would have impending on football pathways going forward. Yeah, I think people always, you know, are afraid of change. But I think, you know, sometimes in order to innovate and develop the game further, sometimes you do have to change and look at something different. And as you said, from our perspective, it's obviously quite exciting because we get to see, you know, these, you know, fantastic teams from all around the world play more games against each other. So you can you can kind of more, call it more of a club World Cup now because there weren't many games, you know, whereas now you have more games. So you're really seeing who the best is. Hmm. And, and I mean, speaking about all of this and speaking about uh, how football is evolving amongst our very eyes and how we could predict how what it will change going forward and evolve. I mean, as someone that begun your career as a coach and as a football development officer and someone that is passionate about building pipelines and pathways for players, what impact do you believe your current work at FIFA and for what's to come will have? on the evolution of football pathways over the coming decade or so? Yeah, I think it, in in many respects, it will be limited um, because of the nature, you know, of what we do in terms of a lot of what we do is obviously, you know, creating content and educational material online. Now, our ideal scenario is we get as many people as we can to utilise these resources and to upskill themselves. But I'd like to think that, you know, the teams that haven't been qualifying for World Cups, they get inspiration from what FIFA are doing and specifically, again, within the training centre as well. And they use it as a framework to start developing their nation and to help develop their nation. But the impact that we would like to have is obviously that level of playing field where more countries that haven't been qualifying for World Cups qualify. 
those that don't qualify all the time. You know, my country, we've qualified for one World Cup, you know, and we aspire to qualify for more, that we help these countries to qualify for more. Then you've got those that don't get out of the group stage as much. We want them getting out of the group stage. And football's obviously always been, you know, for the modern history of the World Cup, has been dominated by Europe. You know, if you look at the previous World Cups, now we would obviously like to see more African teams, more Asian teams, you know, more more teams from the Americas, you know, get into final semi-finals and quarter-finals, you know, so there's more diversity within the game and the globe is represented throughout the World Cup. Good pass. And I mean, to be honest, this has been quite a refreshing tra- chat, Matthew. It's gone in many different ways. It didn't encompass or envisage. But um, I'm equally excited as you to see where the next decade or so it kind of takes you and your own role in developing football pathways because as we spoke of from the start, it's amazing kind of how one's career can be shaped from the forces that are kind of incubated within and just from one's relationship with the very game of football itself. So with that being said, I mean, for anyone listening that's that slightly bit inspired from hearing you speak about some early anecdotes in your football journey and to see where you are at this very moment, what would be the one bit of key advice you'd have for them? Um, Again, fantastic question and, and it's a chance to reflect, but I, I'm not sure if I've, I'd have one bit of advice. For me, the biggest help I ever had was to kind of find myself. Um, and what I mean by that is to fully understand who I am, what my values are, what what's important to me and and to really think about that because for me you, you to to kind of work your own way and be satisfied with it you need to be authentic um and people need to be able to relate to you otherwise it's difficult to develop relationships um and i'd probably say you know on top of that a key one would be in find ways to learn be open to learning and find find ways to learn whether that be whether it's reading whether it's listening to podcasts um watching documentaries videos doing courses whether it's you know formal or informal and look find a mentor find somebody who you know you aspire to as a role model and develop a relationship with them and find out how they develop themselves what that means for you and, you know, you in turn will get support off them, you know, find find a mentor or a coach, somebody will coach you and support you. Look at ways you can learn on the job. I think as a coach, we always um, encourage reflection and many part-time coaches or even full-time coaches in this respect, they reflect on their coaching, but they don't reflect on their job then. So the outside of their coaching, leading themselves, how they lead others, how they lead an organization or a club. So reflect on, you know, what you do outside of your coaching as well. I think I think that's really, really important. And look for new projects you can t- you can take on. And you know, if there's a certain job you want, then have that vision of what paradise should look like for you. And then break it down into goals and systems so you you can achieve that. Look at job descriptions of jobs that you want. And then look at what the key skills are, what the experiences are that you need, what the qualifications are, and start working your way towards that. And I think my, my final bit of advice is 
find out what works for you, find out your place. And I, I, I'm just going to flip it on you for a second corner is when, when do you work best? I would say when there's one big incompetent vision and once you've put yourself in the room with people that share and um, share similar beliefs regarding achieving that vision, because then that becomes a joint mission. And for me, there's nothing more powerful than going into what you could say, quote unquote work, which I don't see it is on a daily basis and being completely revitalized and energized every day from your interactions with the environment. Yeah. Yeah. See, find, you know, what, what you need to be at your best and think of it like you can think of it like football. So, you know, technically, what do you need? Do you need a large computer screen? you know, um, with a mouse and a keyboard to get your work done? Do, do you need to be wearing certain clothing or, you know, something to do with feeling good with inside yourself, a comfy chair or whatever it is, you know, comfy football boots. If you're a coach, think what you need. Then you have the physical stuff. You know, for me, I need to go to the gym at least three to four times a week or I struggle to function. For me, that's that's the physical side. You know, I need to swim. I need to exercise. And I got to have a hobby so I can switch off. That's quite important. And then you can also think of the mental side. You know, do you need a little bit of music just to get the mood going? Do you need certain types of relationships with people? You know, for me, I'm social, love talking and meeting new people. So, you know, I like networking and that kind of thing. You know, live your values. Um, you know, if you need to vent to somebody after you've had frustrations, find somebody you can vent to who you trust. So then you don't have to vent within work then and for me find somebody you can coach you so then you can coach yourself i think that that's what the best people do they can self-coach um you know wherever that's you know doing online courses etc i think that's quite important and the last bit of advice i would give is if you don't like doing certain things start building a tolerance and for 15 minutes a day, just do something you don't like for 15 minutes a day and start developing a tolerance to do that, to do that activity or to do that um, operation or objective you need to get done. Fantastic. And some clear actionable insights there, which I'm sure many, including myself could take away and learn from too. But um, Matthew Clement, again, once again, a big thank you for coming on the show today. Really enjoyed that. Uh, absolute pleasure, Connor. Thanks for having me on. I've really enjoyed it.